We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Men from Moto. Digital strategies with Travis Sowers and David Seville. Intellect, vast, cool, and unsympathetic. Broadcast to the world with the uncanny help of Mana Deprived and FaceToFaceGames.com. Greetings, people of Earth. We are the men from Odo, and you're listening to episode 30, Seven Is Not Zero. My name is David Seville, and I have Travis Sowers on the line with me. How are you this week, sir? I'm fantastic. Excited for GP Toronto, which is this weekend. Ooh, outstanding. And your first week of Hour of Devastation? Oh, yeah. I've been having a lot of fun with this format. I actually like it a good bit better than M and Cat. Yeah, to me so far, I haven't played a, a, a ton, but I'm really enjoying it, and uh, it, it feels... To me, it feels more complete uh, compared to my playstyle. I would say, or it's uh, compatible with my playstyle. So, really enjoying the limited amount of time that I've had in it so far. Also, got to do a pre-release, which was pretty cool. So, I have some fun stories about that. We're going to get into, but uh, this week's episode is uh, a special one because it's going up a couple days early. A, so you're going to be listening to this on a Wednesday instead of a Friday. But B, it's our first kind of look after having played. Uh, with the Hour of Devastation cards, uh, mostly sealed, a little bit of draft. Um, so we're, we're going to kind of give you our thoughts on the early stages of this format before uh, GP Toronto for you and before the Pro Tour coming up. Uh, is it in a couple of weeks, I think? So um, lots of magic to be played, and we have played some of it, so we'll share our experiences with you. Um, so first, I wanted to talk about, so I know you don't play in pre-releases, but uh, I had a really good experience in the pre-release, and I kind of want to brag a little bit here so uh pre-release for me is all about um obviously playing the new set but my daughter and i go and we go to the the local GameStop here and we sit down and we play some two-headed giant and um she's this is her third pre-release and she's come around kind of a long way now so she when she started she was nervous and she was brand new and now she's she knew something about the cards from the previous set from Amon Ket, so she um she took charge in opening those packs and kind of sorted those out and uh and put together what she thought were the good cards from those packs and uh really got engaged in the deck building process this time we actually beat the clock by 10 minutes this time instead of being late on our deck build um but the best part of the whole thing for me was uh, we talked about this um how we don't get masterpieces online invocations online and um she opens up her first pack and i'm sitting there kind of going through my cards and she taps me on on the shoulder and she's like dad what's this and she shows me a masterpiece an invocation I'm like, oh, wow, you open a really rare car. And I, I looked a little closer and squinted because you can't read the text on it. And it was a force of will. <laughs> and uh, the guy across the table looks at us and says, you know, that's like a $200 card, right? And she, her eyes went wide and she's like, do we have to sell it? <laughs> no, we don't have to sell it if you don't want to. But, uh, you know, we, we'll, we'll put that aside. We'll put it in a sleeve and we might play it with it if, if it's uh, something that we can fit into the deck. And then, like, I, I kid you not. I opened my next pack and I opened a threads of uh, disloyalty. It was like the, the first card that I looked at. I flipped the deck, the thing over, flipped over the bottom one. Hey, hey, masterpiece. So we opened dual masterpieces. And uh, obviously we got a lot of buzz in the store around us. There's a bunch of bunch of people sitting around us and they took our picture and stuff. And then uh, as we're playing in like round two, um, I'm playing a blue white deck because our blue white deck was busted we had gideon we had the crested sun mare i had force of will threads of disloyalty i had the angel the the new angel the one that exiles things i had a gideon it was it was stupid how good the deck was 
So and, you took uh, all the good cards and then handed her some stuff to play? No, because she played um she played three rares in her deck. So out of all of our rares, I think we only had two that were off color. Um okay. I played blue white and she played black green and her deck was actually very good. She had like nine pieces of removal and she had um uh the five five amit that uh gets minus one minus one counters and she had a channeler initiate okay okay it was Baleful very good it was very quite good a card quite a card yeah anyway so round two this is the the highlight of my day i could have lost every game except this one and i would have been okay with it so we're kind of back and forth with our opponents and uh it's it's mid to late game our opponents have a nice little board i have, we have a nice little board that's bigger and we can swing for lethal so we do the math and and i ask kayla i'm like hey like you know, do you want to try to attack and win the game here? I put our opponents on a fog because of the way that they had been playing thus far. And they were trying to bait us, it looked like, into a, into an all-out attack so that they could fog and get us back on the crackback. So I tapped out pre-combat. They'd been playing around counter spells all game because I had a few in my deck. I tapped out pre-combat, played like a se- uh, seven drop. We swung with everything except this one thing. They let it all through and I'm like, got them. Went and played Fog, and I pitched Threads of Disloyalty to Path or to to Force of Will. <laughs> and our opponents had no idea we had masterpieces. They were must have been outside when we opened them or something like that. So we went Force of Will, pitching another masterpiece, and uh, and got them. And it felt real good. They were a little salty, but it felt real good. Justifiably so. That's that's some delicious salt. Getting to Force Force of Will, pitching another invocation. Just yeah, just for the just, rub ends. Just got him. And then so we went uh, we went undefeated that day and we came home with a ton of packs and it was glorious. But uh, now we're into the real competition of things. And so I'm very excited to kind of see, you know, how the format plays out in a non busted invocation filled to hit a giant event. You know, and and I'll mention this, too. We went to pre-releases prior to moving. I haven't found a local game store here that really has me super interested or compelled to go to them. It's a weird event, right? Because, like, it's not super competitive, but there's some people at pre-releases who are super competitive. And I'm like, why are you here? I also like this is probably worth mentioning, too, because one of the cards that we have to talk about is Torment of Hellfire. So I, I opened one in a sealed pool and half of the chat is telling me that I have to play it. It's bomb. And the other half is telling me that it's garbage and I shouldn't play it. And I'm still not entirely sure where I come down on the card, although I think I have a better view now than I, I did then. But somebody said in my pre-release, it won me the game so many times. And I, I there wasn't really a way to say this without being a jerk. So I kind of just had to say it. Like, I kind of don't care how the card performed at your pre-release like we're playing in a PPTQ here. This is an entirely different environment. So like if it's performed well at a pre-release and then you try it again and it's performed well in draft and then you open, you know, open it in a PPTQ and you try it there and it's good there, then it's probably just a good card. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I can remember some people being like, and again, I, I'm going to sound like the grumpy old man again, but sometimes people will be like, I went five Oh at my pre-release. I'm like, it's, it's absolutely cool to be excited about that. But it's not quite the same thing. You know, let's let's keep it in perspective here. That is a true story. And the only reason I brag about going undefeated in Two at a Giant is because it's Two at a Giant and it's so variance filled that like I feel like the luckiest person of all to come out with any number of positive wins in well, Two at a Giant. You you went and played with your daughter and had a great after like family afternoon. Like that's, that's a solid the, reason to do it. And then and, you talk you tech winning on top of that. 
That's, I'm, I'm pretty good with that. That's just bonus. So like Kelsey and I went to the, I think the Kaladesh pre-release was the last one that we went to. And it's possible that I'll find a local game store here that gets me interested, but it, like, I don't really want to go to a competitive pre-release. There is a competitive game store around here, but I don't even kind of want to do that. I just want to play with the cards and get into it. And I, mm. now that there's like no delay that, you know, that's honestly probably why I'm not going to pre-releases anymore. I can just play it on moto the next weekend. Like, Take a weekend off, watch some movies, and then come and start playing away. Yeah, start playing on Monday. Yeah. I feel you on that one. That's a terrific change, by the way. Yeah, oh, God. Like, it's been so good to not... Remember, how long did we wait before? We waited, like, two weeks. It was two weeks. This time last year, we were getting ready for GP Montreal, which was Eldritch Moon Sealed. And I had played two Sealed events, because that's all I could find before the actual event, and then went and played with them. And it was not out online when the GP happened. Whereas here, I've probably jammed something like six sealed leagues and four drafts so far. So, like, I actually sort of know something about the format I'm going to go compete in. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love I love it. I mean, even for somebody like me that doesn't stream a ton and doesn't get to play a lot in the summer, like, I still got to jam games the day after the pre-release. Um, so I was pretty, pretty happy with that. But yeah, are you ready to, to talk kind of? First thoughts of the format? Or actually, do you want to start with maybe pick one, pack one? I want to have a little conversation about Torment of Hailfire. Do you want to start with Torment of Hailfire and then we'll do pick one, pack one? How about yeah, that? and then we'll jump in okay. there. So what so, do you what do you think of the card? Uh, my card, my experience is skewed by two at a giant because in our busted sealed pool, we also had one of those. <laughs> so, but even, even in two at a giant, it, it was difficult for us to line up and you're getting double the effect of it, it was difficult for us to line up a position with it that would get us from behind to ahead, right? So we either either casting it at parity and getting just like, just finding a reason to use all of our mana and kind of force our opponents to pay a bunch of life. So it was like a, you know, three lev axes or something like that, even doubled. Um, or it was winning us the game in a position, from a position in which we were already winning, generally speaking. And that's kind of what it seems to be in in regular like sealed or draft just like three notches down because you're not getting that double effect off of it right so i th- i think it's it's a, a, a typical win more card and the people that win with it will think it's great and the people that that lose with it will think it's terrible and the people that recognize that you need to have a very specific deck or a very specific set of circumstances to make the, the card good um or not even good just comparing it to a replacement level card Right. Like if you have Torment of Hailfire or a creature that's, let's say, like like a three, four lifelink or like a like a four, four or something like that. Right. Which card is going to get you more value over the course of the game? A, a four, four that attacks and blocks six times versus Torment of Hailfire for six that nugs your opponent for, you know, maybe 15 and they sacrifice a creature or something like that. Right. Um, I, I think it's I think it's going to be a very polarizing card. And not, I mean, that means it's a good design. Like that means it's a, it's an interesting card to study. Um, I just don't think it's very good and I'm willing, but I'm willing to be proven wrong by it. I think my, my initial impression was similar to yours and that I didn't care for it and didn't want to play it. The only time I've opened it was in a uh, PPTQ and I was like, I'm I'm not going to try it here. I built a different deck, went four and one and got the token and then promptly zero two dropped for those of you who are interested in that, that pool didn't have torment of hailfire. Um, but that was my initial opinion. But a lot of people that I respect have told me that it's good. 
I, I think much like you said, it, it's good in a specific scenario. So we have to see if that's just a scenario that comes up a lot in this format. Um, one of the things that we both seem to have noticed is that blocking, you can do it now where you couldn't before, but it's still kind of rough. And we'll talk about that some later. But in that sort of world where you're always racing face or always trading off resources, I could see the scenario where Torment of Hellfire is a good card coming up. People had also mentioned about playing it in a ramp deck where you can realistically cast it for a lot early. Um, I, I'm still not quite sold on it, but I, I think I would consider it in, in those places like an aggressive deck or potentially in, an, in, a, in a ramp deck. If I think I can get this leverage, the scenario, like make that happen for my opponent where it's actually not a choice for them. Um, similarly, I found Torment of Scarabs to be quite good. The enchantment that does the same thing. Um, I've played that in sealed a lot. And just cause you can play it and then let it build up. I, I actually like that better, but I, I did want to get that out of the way before we did some pack one, pick ones. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because torment of Hailfire will probably drain your opponent of one of their three resources, right? Their cards, their creatures or their permanence, I guess, or their life total. So if you can, if you're casting it when they have, kind of open game on what they want to do so they have all three of those resources available then they'll obviously make the worst decision for you the best decision for them possible right yeah but if you cast it when they're out of cards in their hand or their life totals low or they have nothing on the board you can kind of control their decisions and you can limit the decisions that they can make so if you are if you've already hit them for 10 you know they can't take uh, they can't take that much damage off of torment so now they have to sacrifice other things or if you've already wiped their board with something right you cast this after a board wipe the next turn or or whatever um or they're out of cards in their hand because they just dump them all under the table um now you're making them make a, choose from a, a smaller pool of of decisions um and i think That's channeling them fair. into making channeling them into making the wrong decision or the right decision for you right um is kind of what you want to do so if you can lead them into that direction by aggressively trading off with their creatures or attacking their life total um, or even potentially attacking their hand, I think then it would be better. But you have to be working in that direction. So you kind of have to have your deck around it. You know, maybe it goes in an aggressive deck because you're attacking their life total. But I think I don't remember who commented on it. Maybe it was Neil um, that it doesn't seem like it would go good in a control deck because you're not really attacking their life total and you're not really attacking their creatures necessarily. Um, you know, so they're going to have those options. Yeah, I, I think it's certainly not control, but yeah, that that's interesting. If you can leverage one of those three options and give them less of a choice, that makes the card better. Yeah. Anyway, I don't think I'd pick one, pack one. It's because there's so many other just better cards to pick. But so speaking of pick one, pack ones, absolutely. The floor right, is yours, I got Mr. A, Seville. I got a few. I got four, and if you don't have any, I'll just uh, I'll just roll through these. Do we want to read these cards as we go too? Yeah, I think you absolutely should, just because they're so new. All right, I'm going to bring them up here as we go. So the first one I want to do is uh, Samet the Terrible, uh, sorry, the Tested, uh, versus Ambuscade. So Samet is the Planeswalker, which is two green and a red for a, what is it, four loyalty Planeswalker? You can tell I don't have it up on my screen. Here, um, I've, I've got it up right here. I you've got it up right there? Us. All right, yeah. perfect. So Samet the Tested, two red green for a Planeswalker Samet, with four loyalty, plus one up to one target creature gains double strike until end of turn. Minus two, Samet the Tested deals two damage divided as you choose among one or two target creatures and or players. And minus seven, search your library for up to two creatures and or Planeswalker cards. Put them onto the battlefield and shuffle your library. 
Right. And then Ambuscade, which is easy for me to remember, but I'm going to read it anyway, is the instant uh, tuna green combat or not combat trick removal spell. Um, one sided fight spell target creature you control deals gets a plus one plus zero and deals damage equal to its power to target creature and opponent controls. So do you like your planeswalkers or do you like your instant speed fight spell one sided fight spell in green? I've actually had the opportunity to play with Sam at twice. Um, I found that she's actually very, very bad if you are behind. She doesn't really do anything. A lot of people complain about Planeswalkers and Limited that don't defend themselves. And I don't think that's a fair criticism. I think it isn't constructed. In Limited, the rest of your deck is probably creatures, so quit your whining. She does kill a surprising amount of things with her minus two. If you're ahead or at parity, the plus one will enable attacks um that that you may not otherwise have and i have already ultimate her in limited and as long as your deck doesn't suck you'll probably win the game from that i did um that said a two color card although it is in green so it's easy to splash if i'm on the stream i'm going to take sam and we're going to play with it because it's fun if i'm at day two of the gp in toronto i'm taking ambuscade first pick it's it's one color so it's considerably more likely to make it into my deck rather than locking me into two colors like the, the way the math works on that, how many pe- colors can I pair green with if I first pick a green card? All of them. All of them, right? So that's that's what, 20% for each of those other colors that I could play, whereas if I pick Samet, I'm committing myself to either playing specifically green-red or having to take fixing early or hope I get it late or play some weird stuff like Traveler's Amulets to, to make it go. And like like I said, I've seen this Samet at her best and at her worst. And I think Ambuscade is just a card I'd be happier to have. I, again, if I'm on the stream, let's take the Planeswalker. But at the GP this weekend, I, I'm going to take the Ambuscade. I can dig it. I probably take the, the Planeswalker on stream as well. But um, I think it would be very close in an interesting discussion. And if nobody was watching me, I'd probably take Ambuscade because nobody was there to judge me. Yeah, I, I would say, yeah. it, it, honestly, if I'm doing a draft in preparation for the, the GP, I would do that too. And then like, just justify it. Like this is going to go in your green deck and it's going to be significantly better than Samet in a lot of board states. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next up, I have um, Chaos Maw versus Open Fire. So another one that's re- versus removal. So Chaos Maw is the seven mana red six, six. So five red, red. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, it deals three damage to everything. So pseudo board wipe. Um, I've been very impressed by that card. I had it in my sealed pool and it was awesome versus open fire, which is two and a red for an instant three damage to creature or face, which is not something we get frequently. Again, at at the GP, I think I'm taking the open fire uh, because it doesn't look like it. But Chaos Maw is actually a gold card. This is secretly green. a green red card. Mm-hmm. You throw this into your... Like, think about this for a minute in red-white. This is not what you want. Red-black, also not what you want. Uh, Red-blue, maybe. If we've got... If you're controlling, right? Yeah, if you're controlling, this is not a a bad wrath. But usually what I want to do is build a deck with the two four rampers and kind of ramp this out, wipe the board, and then kill them, and then build my deck in such a way that I lose very few creatures when this lands, and ideally my opponent loses a lot. So I, I... I think Chaos Maw is a justifiable first pick, and I wouldn't hate you for saying let's take it. I've also been playing a lot of Sealed, and I've seen this card come down and both win games for my opponent. I haven't played with it yet, but I've also been able to beat it. Like, 
it, there are times when three damage to every creature isn't even necessarily beneficial for you. Whereas like open fire just goes in all of your red decks. It's again, I can play red, white. I can play red, blue. I can even play red, green, and I'm not going to be un- unhappy to have that. I'll find a, you know, five, six trampler to ramp into. I, I don't have to have this. So I like chaos Maw a lot, but I'm, I'm going with the three mana lightning bolt. I think the best, the best part about this card is ramping into it on turn five after you've played your two, four on turn four. Yeah. and exert it for two extra mana like if you're playing this on turn five basically on curve your opponent the odds that your opponent has nothing but x3s or less is pretty good i would say especially if you're on the play and you've built a combo then right like you have to draw the exert guy first and this even if you've got two or three of the exert guys it's not guaranteed so i yeah. I, I would still rather open with open fire that's fair all right um Give me a hard another one, one. <laughs> well, I've, the next one is is another gold card versus a not gold card, but at least it's not removal this time. We're going to do the Obelisk Spider versus the Steward of Solidarity. So Steward of Solidarity is the one and a white for a, what is it, a 2-2, and you can make uh, 1-1 soldiers by exerting it. Uh, the soldiers have vigilance, by the way. And the Obelisk Spider is one black and a green for a 1-4, uh, and when it deals damage to things it puts a minus one, minus one counter on it. And when it puts minus one, when anything puts minus one, minus one counters, um, anything you control, I think. Correct. Again, I'm just going off, off memory here. Uh, you drain your opponent for one. That is correct. It's worth noting that that um, means when it blocks, it will deal two damage to something. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. do I want to first pick a two drop that can attack and block and make tokens or a fancy giant spider? That has synergy. Maybe not as much synergy in this format as it as the previous one. Yeah, and I think I'm being poisoned a little bit here because I've been playing so much sealed, and in sealed, mm-hmm. the obelisk spider has been a complicated giant spider every time I faced it. I've yet to open one, but I've also yet to see the card really matter. I suppose if we're drafting and I can get enough neg one neg one counters for it to matter, I would be interested. But I. I don't know that there's that many of them out there. Like I need torment of venom. I need, which is already a high pick. I need, uh, what's lasting lethal, lethal sting. That's the one I need those. And there's not that many of those out there anymore. So I I think I'd take the steward every time I have gotten to play with the steward and I can tell you it's quite good. It does not Mm -hmm. take very long for you to get an army going. I even managed to get it with two of the, uh, two one Avens that untap things. And that's so good is quite the wombo combo. So bust that, that thing with that, those Avens with anything in it with exert is just busted. Yeah. Um, no, but th- this kind of goes back to, uh, before the set was released and we were doing reviews and previews and listening to those and things like that. And obelisk spider was much higher on my list than it is now. And because now that I've played the format a bit, there's not as many minus one, minus one counters. Um, and, and so I think, whereas we might've first picked decimator beetle, Sure. Because that was consistent and it, it worked by itself. Um, the fact that Obelisk Spider is generally just a fancy 2-4 um, was a little disappointing, actually, seeing seeing how the format has played out so far. But that may change as we, as we do more drafts. I, I think even if the Obelisk Spider wasn't a gold card, I'd still want the Steward because I tend to favor cards that... Like, the, the Steward of Solidarity is almost a two-mana win condition. Like, if you just leave this alone and don't interact with it long enough, you can overwhelm your opponent with it. Whereas the spider is never going to do that. Like it can peck in for maybe two points of damage a turn if you've got some counter shenanigans in your deck. But like, so can this. So I I, I think I'm definitely on board with the steward. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, and then the last one I've got for you, and this is this is actually I think uh, this is an interesting one. So we've got uh, aerial guide, which is two and a blue for a two two. Uh, when it attacks, it gives something else flying. Versus its best buddy, and by best buddy I mean a big giant green creature, uh, Sifter Worm, which is uh, five green green for a seven seven. Uh, I think it has trample. It does. Uh, when it comes into play, it scries three, and then you gain life uh, by revealing the top card you, uh, based on its converted mana cost. So, do you want a big dumb green seven seven, or do you want a cheap, reliable two two in blue that bounces your other big dumb things? Wow, that's that's actually this is much more interesting than any of the ones we've had before. So the aerial guide is good in any blue deck. I, I like that. It doesn't necessarily have to go with green. I love landing O'Ketcher's Avengers into aerial guides. That's quite good. For reference, when I said I ultimated Samet and won the game, one of the cards I got was an aerial guide. Uh, the other one was, I think, a Colossipede, and that was enough. Um, so I, I have a lot of respect for the aerial guide. That said, Sifter Worm's just a whole different power level. Here's a reason for me to ramp. Like, it, it is green and ramping is somewhat what green wants to do in this format. Anyway, we've got three common ramp spells, um, excuse me, two and then an uncommon one. So I, I think I'm going to go with a sifter worm. There's nothing like landing a sifter worm, having an instant threat and then gaining the life back and then scry three by the time you've already got seven mana. It feels so good to put two lands away or even one land away and be like, All right, I'm going to gain five, draw this colossopede and have the mana to cast it and then still have more action afterwards. I think that's much closer, and I don't think either pick would be wrong by much, but I, I'm going for the Sifter Worm. It's a trick question, because it, it, to me, when I did my last draft, it felt like blue was really underdrafted, so I, you could probably wheel the aerial guide. I'm <laughs> mostly kidding, but but I've been seeing a, I've been seeing aerial guides, like, I think the last one that I did, I think it was seeing like sixth or seventh pick, and that seems completely wrong to me. So I think either as in a bad not bad pod, but like a pod that maybe didn't have as much experience um, or knew what aerial guides text was. Um, so it'll be interesting to see because I, I think at the pro tour, um, you know, obviously the, the, those strategies will get sent around. It'd be interesting to see where they, where they go with aerial guide. It's um, a card to keep an eye on. One thing that I will note about aerial guide is it does not block well, which maybe the, maybe that's the knock on it. Maybe why, maybe that's why it gets passed. And then I end up with like four aerial guides in my deck. Yeah, like I, I I don't actually know that I want more than three in a deck and I need to have some great stuff to launch with it. So I'm looking for like assertive two drops or again, big, dumb, green fat. Um, and it, it certainly fits in both of those decks, but like that, that is a little bit of a knock on it. Like there's some decks where it's just kind of a wind drake. And wind drakes are okay, but in, in a format where there's, you know, decent amounts of removal, like we've talked about two of them already, and there's many more that we haven't touched on here um it, it can be a liability so maybe that's the problem with it maybe maybe there is a a bit of a downside to it there i think so i don't think you like if they just put windrake in this format we wouldn't even be talking about it it's the fact that it launches other things that doesn't make it a bad card there's certainly been formats where this would be completely busted uh but here i, I think it's actually balanced quite well mm-hmm Okay, that's all I had for pick one, pack one. So maybe we'll get some more next week after we've had a bit more of an opportunity to go through draft formats. Um, and if anybody listening out there wants to throw us one on Twitter or something like that, by all means, you can uh, take a screenshot and send it over to us. And we will, who knows, maybe it'll make it on the next podcast. And at the very least, uh, I will respond to you because um, I like those kinds of things. So me too. But um, 
between the both of us, it's been surprising me, me especially, but not really for you is that, um, we've been doing a lot of sealed. Uh, I've done more sealed than draft and you obviously do more sealed than draft all the time and prep for your, for your GPs. So, um, what's your take on the sealed format so far? Uh, how do you like it? What, what are the archetypes? What are the things that you've noticed so far in your, your first week and a half or so of, of sealed? I found it to be absolutely glorious. I have really enjoyed the sealed format it's it's similar to Ammon Cat. I suspected upon review that there would still be a green deck that was basically splashing for everything. And I have certainly seen that pool and it has not been bad. The fixing is somewhat prevalent elsewhere. We've still got Evolving Wilds and Traveler's Amulets, so you can often play your good cards. And now we've got more removal. Um, so I've had an absolute blast playing all of the decks. I, I haven't seen one color that's definitely worse than the rest. White slants aggressive. So like if you have white cards, you're often going to want to be playing an aggressive strategy, which I don't typically like in sealed. I had also initially stated that I thought there were going to be more aggro decks in this format because of how many two drops there were. And maybe there are, I've bumped into some of them, but they're not very good. Um, I I think this is a format where you definitely want to have a plan against aggro because somebody's going to try it. Uh, but I, I wouldn't be looking to build an aggressive deck here. There's also a lot of surprise lifelink laying around. Scrounger of Souls is a black card I've been very happy to have access to. I've, I've even played two of them in Sealed, and it's been fantastic. So like just initial impressions, all, all of the archetypes are, are still there, especially like the four or five color green, even the double splash version. Or if I've got like two of the Oasis Ritualists and the Gifts of Paradise, let's do it, man. Oasis Ritualist seems like just the best card for sealed um like the best common or uncommon type card for sealed like if you're opening those you're you're very very happy it seems like it's it's good enough that my typical process when building a sealed pool is to look at the rares and then go through and pull out the unplayables and then see what i'm actually looking at and then make a pile of okay these are the cards that matter in sealed i want to play these I've actually changed that a little bit now. And that the first thing I do is go look to see how many Oasis Ritualists and Gifts of Paradise I have. And if mm-hmm. I've got two or three, it changes my evaluation completely. Yeah, that, that's been in my in my seal pool. I did the nine game friendly and um, it turned out to just be kind of bonkers. And I didn't even have a ton to ramp into. Um, it's just having the flexibility of colors being able to splash easily um, and then also the threat of activation on like dropping a seven drop or something like that is is kind of outstanding. It also combos well with obviously cycling, gives you that extra mana to cycle um, and things like uh, Oracle's Vault or the Sunset Pyramid. Um, there are some mana sinks in the format. Like I had the uh, the five mana plus two plus two creature exemplar of strength. Is that what he's called? No. Um, you know, the one that I'm talking about. It's a three, two for three or two and a green. Uh, you're talking about the devotee of strength. Devo- oh, right. There you go. Um, and, and it just seems like there's a lot of places to dump that extra mana, even if I was empty handed. Um, yeah. and, and I was pretty, pretty pleased with that. So speaking of sunset pyramid, um, mm-hmm. that's a neat little card for sealed. I think it may just be an auto include in just about everything. I've had it in two or three pools now, and I've been really happy to see it every time I drew it. It's like you drop it. When you've got some extra mana, you draw your card. And then late in the game, when you've played out your hand, you can just start scrying. Um, it, it does play very nicely with Oracle's Vault. Should you ever get that Wombo combo together, it's kind of neat to scry and then be like, no, I'll, I'll play this God Pharaoh's Gift for free. 
that was a fun deck we had today. But I, I think that's just a nice little powerful card and, and something to keep an eye out on, on for sealed. I, I, I don't have a good pulse on draft yet to 100% say, you know, there's less aggressive deck, so it's okay to play this. But I, I definitely like that in sealed. Yeah, it was. I don't remember who it was that I was talking to that that kind of questioned if it was good or not, and they, you know, they said it, it was so slow and it took forever to draw your cards. And to me, it was kind of like, well, it's like it's just like a repeatable cycler to me. Right? Same cost, most of them cost two, and so you do your first one and you're down, you're down four mana for for a card, um, and then you do your next one. Now you're to six mana for two cards, which is pretty close. Um, you know, that's that's not that much more than just cycling your cards, your lands, your extra lands away, right? You're paying a little bit of a premium there. So I think as long as you're drawing your third card at some point in the game, um, you're getting enough value off of it. And just the flexibility of being able to spend your your leftover mana. Like if you have seven mana on board, you're, you're not always going to be able to spend all seven on your turn. So you draw first, see if there's something better to play than the three drop that's in your hand, um, for example. Just the just the flexibility, you know. We we've always liked scrying on upkeep, things like this sigiled starfish and the um, various other things that you can scry on upkeep. The the dude that um, cost energy in in uh, Aether Revolt or, or Kaladesh or whatever it was that it was one energy tap in one energy to scry, mm-hmm. right? And he was great. And we yeah, and we love doing that. I mean, obviously, it didn't cost you mana to do that. Um, but just giving you the flexibility to do that. So, um, big fan of the sunset pyramid. Yeah. I like Plus it. It makes your quarry haulers better. It does. When you get them in pack three, it does. You can it, start bricking them on up. I've also found, um, blazing volley to be, um, almost main deckable and sealed. And every draft deck I have faced has had targets for this. We just live in a world of X ones now. So that's a card from M and Ket that I wasn't normally very interested in. But now I found myself, if I'm red, I'm actually quite interested in it. I usually liked having one in the sideboard. Uh, now, when I'm drafting, I want it in the main deck, and I've main decked it and sealed and been happy. Hmm. What about Blur of Blades? Are you also up on the Blur of Blades then? I, I actually dislike that card in sealed, though I like it in draft for kind of what may sound like weird reasons. So Blazing Volley is going to kill a 1-1, which, an X-1, right? Which is usually what I want to do with the upside of sometimes I can get a two for one or a three for one out of it. And I've gotten two for ones and sealed already. It does all of that for one mana. It also has the option of being used post combat. Like I attack my three, four into their three, four, and then use it. For example, it doesn't come up Mm -hmm. a lot, but it's a thing. Whereas blur of blades, again, I like it in draft because I'm likely going to be able to pick something off. But but I have not found two ones or three ones to be the cards that matter in sealed very often. So it's that's something that I definitely want in my sideboard for sealed. And then if somebody looks like they're going to be vulnerable to it, I'll bring it in. Um, however, in, in draft, just play the darn thing. It, it, I, I don't know that it's premium. It's probably filler level stuff, but it's not bad. But sealed, I'm going to edge that out. Draft, I'm going to edge it in. Speaking of removal, though, in the format, like it's it's like they turned up the dial on removal for this set they certainly did like the amount of mostly unconditional removal that we get now even though it's still expensive but those days of the days of cheap unconditional removal are long gone and we 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 cry about that every every episode it seems like but like you know lethal sting puncturing blow even sandblast cards like that farm to market ambuscade you know there's there is a lot of good common removal that is 
generally speaking, in most board positions, unconditional, right? Puncturing blow, I know it only does five damage. That's enough to kill most things, right? Yeah. yeah. Lethal lethal sting, sure, you're putting a minus one, minus one something on on your creature. You you need to have a creature on board, but obviously it's unconditional once you've met that, that kind of got over that initial hurdle. So it's like unconditional, conditional removal. And ambuscade, if you're playing green, there's enough big, dumb green things that you can kill most things. Um, I've been very, very happy with the removal in this format, so much so that I'm even considering maybe not prioritizing it as highly, whereas in, and maybe this is incorrect of me, but in Amonkhet, it felt like I was prioritizing removal higher than than normal, and maybe that's maybe that was causing me to not get the good creature base that I needed to be competitive in that format. But for me now, it's like, you know, I'll see like fourth pit, pit, fourth pick lethal sting and i'll say to myself well i've got two pieces of removal i probably don't need this third one i can go pick a better like a reasonable creature or something like that i know you're shaking your head because you're crazy like I'm, I'm seeing so much of it though maybe that's just early maybe people do are just undervaluing it but like i'm leaning in that direction where there seems to be so much removal like you can get the torment of the whatever we're venom minus one minus ones right torments of, of venom like I got one like fifth pick the other day in pack two. And it's kind of like, you know, sure. Maybe I'm the only one in black, but I don't think that's very likely. Um, you know, I think my, my, my red black draft deck ended up with like two lethal stings, a torment of venom, two puncturing blows and either an open fire and ambuscade. And, you know, that's obviously a lot of removal, but I probably could have prioritized a little bit more if I wasn't saying to myself, okay, well, you know, here's a really good creature. I'm going to take it over, you know, uh, splendid agony or something like that. Like I felt like I didn't need to stretch myself real thin to, to get those pieces of removal. There's definitely more of it. And I, I think that the alternate casting cost stuff like Le- lethal sting is a card. I like quite a lot because you get to kill whatever you want, but you have to nerf one of your own creatures to do it. And I think that's a really cool design space. And I'm glad that they played around with that, but I, I have not been unhappy taking the removal. The, the creatures that I would take over it are things that will win the game on their own. If left uninteracted with so the, the i think it's baleful amet i've got the card list right here i can look no it up. The, the five five yeah yeah it's not it's an amet but i don't amet eternal amet amet eternal that's that's the one we're talking about like yeah i'm gonna take that over some removal because i faced that on turn three before and it's kind of like all right do you have a removal spell because if you don't game's sort of over right like the card is just that level of power so things like that yeah i'm going to pick over removal other than that i'd rather just have as much removal as i can Removal does have some diminishing returns, and I understand that because if I have a deck that's 15 removal spells and seven creatures, then I'm going to have to use a lot of that removal on stuff that I might normally not want to use removal on because I just can't trade. So I kind of look at creatures as removal in some cases that can attack and block, right? So like, there's some of them that I'm certainly interested in, um, but I, I, I don't think having too much removal is something you've got to worry about. Oh, yeah. And and I'm sure that that I'll come around off of that. It was just interesting where it felt like I had a, an abundance of removal. Just, and I don't think I ever felt that in Amonkhet. Yeah, that's just because there wasn't this much of it in Amonkhet. That's that's all that it is. It's like, oh, my God, removal spells. I haven't seen these before. I can take so much. Nah, it, it feels good, though. Like, I'm, I'm not fighting for removal, which is really good. Like, I could get to pack three and I can see an electrify and not feel like I had to snap it up if I'm in red because I don't have any removal at all. You know, I can actually stop and think about it. So, yeah, but removal is great. Very happy with it so far. Um, 
Inferno Jet. Can we talk about Inferno Jet? We can. We can. I'm not sure who popularized it, but many streamers will say the phrase one is not zero, meaning that I'm not dead yet, even though I'm going to a low life total, one being a low life total. Uh, Inferno Jet is part of what makes one not good enough anymore. Yeah, and that's 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 the title. Seven is not zero. So when we were warming up here, we were joking and and talking about, you know, how it's tough to block, or or maybe it's easier to block, but there's like afflict and there's burn to the face and there's inferno jet and it's like hey you know it's almost like six is not zero and then you reminded me that inferno jet was a thing and it's like more like seven is not zero. So this this is kind of a with all the afflict and still some exert. And the Inferno Jet and Open Fire that can go to your face and Trial of Zeal can go to the face, I think, right? Yep. There's just there's just this general feeling of dread when you're at anything less than, I would say, seven. Like, if I'm at six or less playing against a red deck, I, I could die at any time. Or I could be at four and my opponent has two Afflict creatures on board with Afflict two and I'm dead no matter what. Like, I can't, I cannot win from that position. Um, and, and it... You could if you drafted more removal, Dave. That's true. I could, right? But you get yourself into these kind of unwinnable positions because of afflict or because of open fire. Like I've seen you lose to open fire to the face many times. Yep. And that's not like that's not a knock on you. That's just, you know, you're you're at five, your opponent swings and hits you for two because you could only block one thing, and then you open fire to the face and you're dead, right? You it feels like these you can lose out of nowhere a little bit more frequently in this format than you, than maybe an Ammon cat. Yeah, right? I, I absolutely agree that there's not as many afflict creatures as I initially thought after looking through, like, I, I don't think that's a huge part of it, but there's enough of them that they matter and that I'll aggressively trade with them early if I possibly can, because I don't want my life total to get low when I'm playing against those cards. And then there's a surprising amount of reach in the format. Um, as you've mentioned already, several burn spells in red, We've still got Painful Truths in black. I almost killed somebody with that today, uh, which was quite nice. Um, and uh, I've just Torment. Bumped, Torment of Venom d- does cause them to lose life potentially too. Like there's just, there's a lot of reach. Um, I, I, I think more than I've seen before. So yeah, I, I get nervous when my life total is low. And like before I would get nervous around two, three Whereas here, I do actually start to feel it around seven. Like, Fling is still a card. There's still a surprising amount of haste creatures running around. On-crop crashers haven't disappeared. So it's it's like red is doing what red used to do more, which is just burn. And that's, again, why I found cards that have any any form of incidental life gain or especially lifelink have just kind of gone up in value for me. So that when I play mm-hmm. against that red deck, if I'm not main decking, I'm, I can get them in there. So... Blocking still kind of sucks, but it doesn't suck because because it's hard to block. It sucks because you, have you to feel block. like you have to block, right? And you're putting your opponent in a position where if they have a combat trick, you know, they're going to get you and it's going to suck. But what can you do about it, right? Like you can't just keep taking two a turn, three a turn um, until the end of time because eventually you're going to get to seven or six and you're going to not have any more decisions to make because your opponent has too much afflict on the board, right? So I wonder if... Like, it definitely favors the attacker, um, but I think you have to be willing to throw your creatures away and and call some bluffs to get some combat tricks out of your opponent's hands. But also, I don't think you can count on your own combat tricks defensively um, because your opponent could just have open fire in hand, right? Like, because there's so much removal. Um, it's, it's an interesting 
format for attacking and blocking but i think it definitely favors the attackers so kind of kind of just keep that in mind um siding into defensive creatures dune beetle wall of pharaohs things like that i mean creatures are you're okay kind of just losing to a combat trick or or things that'll brick your opponent's creatures for any number of turns protect your life total i think is uh is very good we've seen a lot of the tricks too move from one mana in the previous format to two mana here so quite often blocking early will take their entire turn to use a combat trick I, I have turned almost into a complete call station in this format. Like when people attack with me, if they're attacking a 2-3 into a 2-3, like generally speaking, I blocked that anyway, but I'd think about it some, whereas now I just I don't even think anymore. If I have blocks on the board, I just block. Like if if they have it, I'm going to have to play around it the rest of the game anyway. Like nah, just, just block. If you have the opportunity to block what looks like a, a not reasonable attack from your opponent, do it. Now, if you've seen like, a specific combat trick, maybe the the uncommon one that untaps two creatures from the previous set and they're making an attack that looks like that. Maybe you want to play around it. But like in general, I'm talking about you have a two, three, they have a two, three, they untap for turn four and swing. I'm blocking every time. Yeah, I don't even think it's that. I think if, if they have a two, three and I have a three, two, you know, I'll consider blocking that a lot more than I did in the previous set. Right. Um, and I think especially against the flick so i think this is interesting so what beats a flick aside from removal like creatures that are large enough to kill it right yeah so consider the following right your opponent goes you know they they play a, a two drop with a flick you play a, a two drop they play a three drop with a flick or whatever they attack you block they don't use a combat trick they play a three drop with a flick you play a three drop so let's say they played the is there is there a two three that has a flicked I don't think that there actually is. We, no, we'll, I don't we'll think look that at there it. is. Amid Eternal, they had the bomb. Okay, sure, right. So, you know, maybe maybe you're setting up for double block. So, so they do nothing. You play a two drop. They play that. You play a three drop. You kind of have to double block it. Yeah. Right? Because, I mean, that one in particular, because it's just so damn good. But you, you kind of look at your head, and, and if you're playing a, a blue deck or a green deck or something that has like five fives that can block their afflict creatures later on, you kind of almost want to get to that point in the game with enough life that you can slam those things and you just shut off the afflict for the rest of the time. But if you keep taking two a turn, four a turn off the afflict, by the time you play your five five, you know, you're, you maybe you're at eight life, ten life, and now they can just start throwing their afflict creatures away and get that extra damage through. So you, I feel like you have to be aggressive early in the blocking um maybe call their tricks get their combat tricks out of their hand or potentially the removal out of their hand i mean assuming you have a curve in your hand um and hoping to get to that late game where you can double block and they don't have a trick or you have that five five on board so you kind of almost want to get to that mid-range that that midpoint of the game um with a life total intact that you're not just dead to inferno jet times two yeah or just play the aggressive deck is the other way you could do this like you'd be the one that's casting spellweaver eternal into merciless eternal like that seems good to me too. Oh God, the the that one's the two one in blue, right? Oh yeah, that card's with, with great. prowess. Prowess that one's flick stupid. Too. That one's stupid. It's really I good. I hate that card. I love it's that really card. Good. Well, I know, but I hate getting beat down by it. So there's also two rares I want to talk about because I've had the chance to interact with these some. Have have there any been any cards that you're kind of like, okay, I tried these. I can let the masses know for sure what this card's about. Yeah, the Crucible of Naga. Um, what's he called? The Ruminap Excavator? That's the one. Um, 
it was gimmicky and neat, but I don't think it's neat enough to play unless you're in a sealed pool and it works really, really well. Um, I got lots of value off of it because I had the land that made a zombie, the desert that you would pay Pray three tap sack to make a zombie. Yeah, but it was still really slow. Um, where it really shined was playing your cycling lands from the graveyard. Um, or getting repeat value out of your green or red or black um, uh, spell lands, right? Two minus one, minus one counters in black or the red one for two damage. You got some value there, but even then it's just incredibly slow. So you kind of have to be in that mid-rangey board stally type deck to make that valuable, I think. Um, so I don't think I'd ever prioritize it in draft. But I mean, if you open a sealed pool that works with it, you could do worse um, as your 22nd, 23rd card because you're playing Deserts anyway. Yeah, and the, the card does lend itself well towards a mid-rangey deck anyway. A 2-3 kind of leads to a board stall. Mm-hmm. So I can get behind that. The the two cards I wanted to mention in particular, I, I think everyone knew this, but I opened Wildfire Eternal and had the opportunity to play with it a little bit, and it's really bad. It's really, really bad. It's three and a red for one four. Afflict four. When it attacks and isn't blocked, you can cast an instant or sorcery card from your hand without paying its mana cost. And what that means is you have a 1-4 unblockable for 4. Um, unless your opponent can just block it and kill it, at which point they do. Um, like, there's hardly... You have to have a spell in your hand that you want to cast um, that the time is right to cast. So, like, counter spells don't work. Removal spell. Like, what are you removing if they can't pl- profitably block a 1-4? So I've seen the card not be bad and not be good. And then another one that I got to play with today, I actually got a draft deck with two copies of Abandoned Sarcophagus. I was very interested in trying out this card. That's the three mana artifact. You may cast non-land cards with cycling from your graveyard. If a card with cycling would be put into your graveyard from anywhere and it wasn't cycled, exile it instead. The deck ended up not doing particularly well. I don't think I had a great version of it, but I can tell you that when this worked, it felt like I was cheating. Like I would play a bunch of creatures with cycling and trade them off, then play this, then all the spells in my deck, I get to basically cycle to draw another card and then cast this. I had two river serpents and two river winders in the deck, so I could easily just cycle those early too. Um, so I, I, I think this may be a decent build around. I would caution you. I kind of took some questionable cyclers to play. I would encourage you to try to play this with good cyclers and I think you'll have a good deck opening drake haven with that would be living the dream it certainly would be yeah that seems like a really fun card like i would like to try that card it's really cool um one comment that about the um the wildfire eternal Mm -hmm. is that that its name um somebody posted a screenshot i don't remember who where they uh they had inferno jets with that card and that's basically the only scenario i think where you would want that card (laughs) if you're running that with inferno jets because then you're just casting them for free Maybe it was uh, maybe it was Dave Murphy who had like three that three of them plus one of those in his deck, like three uh, Inferno Jets plus that. And um, it looked it looked very fun. But you're right. It's it seems really bad. Yeah. I also kind of want to touch on deserts. Can we talk about those? Yeah. Now you have to eat your dinner before you can have your desert, right? Oh, man. I don't want to eat my Brussels sprouts. Um, so the cycle lands. Very cool. I don't think people are picking at least the people I'm playing against aren't picking them highly enough. I think I would start picking cycle lands uh, kind of below removal and above, um, you know, kind of the medium creatures because if I'm already in those colors, um, especially in pack one, because I think the payoffs for picking up deserts um, 
you you can get really paid off in pack two. Um, there's a lot of really good desert matters cards. And then the, the spell lands in particular, the green, the red and the black ones, um, are well, the black, black for sure is probably the best one out of all of them. I really like the green one. Um, but that's because I had the excavator to loop it. Um, and then, uh, the red one is just really good way to get kind of that extra reach through, you know, seven is not zero. Maybe we need to up that to like nine is not zero. <laughs> um, and they've just over impressed. Um, I had the Runamap, Runamap Hydra, um, which is just a bomb if you have any number of deserts, um, like more than two. And, um, you know, you get a 5-5 Vigilance Reach Trample, which is bonkers. And then all of, obviously, all the Desert Matters cards in red um, and and black and things like that. So um, I'm a big fan of those cards so far. Deserts have been very good. The the common payoffs, uh, specifically the Camel uh, both the wretched camel and the solitary camel have been quite good. I found unquenchable thirst to be a little more playable than I thought because it was so cheap. And the sidewinder Naga is, is pretty decent too. The gilded Ceridon isn't really something I want a lot of in my deck. Um, but I've found I'm pretty happy with one or two of these if I've got enough deserts. And then once we get into uncommon, like deserts hold, who cares whether you have deserts, the card's just good, but the sand strangler, my goodness, if you can enable that, that card's just a beating. been super happy with that. The Dune Diviner, the one that lets you tap lands to gain life, I think kind of sucks. I think it's a very specific scenario you want that one in. Like, it's not even against an aggressive deck. I don't think because it's too slow. Yeah. I think it's more against, like, a mid-range deck with lots of afflict. Maybe you want that. Um, just to pad your life total out. Or maybe against somebody that puts a, a torment of whatever it is, scarabs on you or something, which whatever the one is that, that drains you for three every turn. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't think Still it's gotta have six enough. mana to counter that. Like I, I'm kind of out on that guy. And then yeah. speaking of deserts, talk to me about the cycling deserts. Now I, I really like the spell deserts, but I mm-hmm. particularly like the cycling deserts. And I think those are the ones that you meant. People are not necessarily taking early enough. What's so great about how land having cycling uh because you can pitch it when it doesn't need to be a land that's the key thing um and i think being aggressive on cycling them really makes them them good like so you look at your opening hand and you might have three lands in a tap land and a two or three and a four drop or something like that right you know some people might just say well i'm just going to play my my tap land and not cycle it you know i think where you get value out of those is where you can say well you know, I have a two drop and a three drop and a bunch of turns to draw my fourth untapped land. I'm just going to cycle this card on turn. You know, I'm not going to play it. I'm going to cycle it later on or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe because you have a two drop, maybe you play the tap land because you're not cycling this on turn through on turn uh, turn two. But if you had a three drop, three drop, four drop, maybe that's a better example. Right. You can be aggressive and cycle them um, and, you know, hit your fourth or fifth untapped land or whatever and if not you're probably drawing cards you can cast anyway so um i think they're super flexible not only that they get deserts in the graveyard and i really like where some of these desert matters cards care about them in the yard not just on the table and i think that makes cycling them a lot easier too so i'm a big fan of these cards um you mentioned that you think it's a 17 land format before that we started the show here um and i think cycle lands are a big reason for that yeah, I, if you have enough of them. In, in the previous format, I did play a few 15 landers, mostly 16 land decks. If I Specifically, if I could get three or more one mana cyclers, I was quite happy to play 16 lands. When you're tacking the cycling onto the land instead of the spells, it kind of shifts the other direction. 
So like when spells, particularly one mana cyclers, are a lot of what's in your deck, I want to play less lands. But when I can cycle my lands, all of a sudden I want to play more lands. Like mm-hmm. the, the scenario you mentioned, like it could go wrong for you either of those ways. If you play the tap land initially or you play the, you know, you wait to cycle it away. Where it can't go wrong from you is where you're tap, top decking. You're like, I need action. You draw a cycle land. You're like, sweet. I'm going to cycle that and see what else we got in here. And you can yep. totally do that. And it's great. It is great. There's some interesting decision points you have to make around those cycle lands, particularly like in your opening hand. Am I planning on cycling this? Am I not planning on cycling this? And I think I've found it helps me to plan out my turns, you know, both if I draw lands and if I draw spells. So it's like, you know, if I have a five drop in my hand and four land and one of them is a tap land, I have to think to myself, you know, am I going to take the risk of not getting my fifth land? Can I not play my fifth my, my, my five drop on curve am i okay with that should i be cycling this card or whatever um and then for example you know do i have a two drop to play or should i be cycling this to try to hit you know a land for my three drop or something like that right like i think there's some really interesting decision points there um particularly around the opening hand so somewhat skill intensive um when it comes to cycling those but i mean you generally can't go wrong right you'll know you'll know what's in your deck and and you'll know better than anyone whether you should be cycling those or not I almost feel like if you don't have two cycle deserts in your draft deck, at least you probably you probably aren't taking them highly enough. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of them too. Yeah. So, um, and it's so easy to get the, the desert matters creatures. Like the black one and the white one, ha- I found to be quite easy. Um, the others are a little bit higher picks, but those those two are quite good in their colors. Yeah, uh, but I mean, like, there's not even just the commons. There's the uncommons, too. There's a couple of rares, or at least one rare. Um, Ain't nobody passing a Sand Strangler, man. You can forget about seeing that. I'm not passing any. That's a true story. Yeah. Anyway, Deserts, A+. Very cool. Um, the, the colorless ones, I'm not a huge fan of, unless I can get, like, unless I need to enable some of my Desert Matters cards. Yeah. Um. So... The like I mentioned that I had the uh, the cradle of the cursed, the one that makes the the zombie, and I played that because I had the hydra and I had the excavator, and I wanted to see if that combo did anything. And believe it or not, like it did win me the game once, and it was never a liability on my side of the table. But it was still a colorless land that was in my deck, um, you know that 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 could have been a liability. Um, but getting extra value off the spell land was was pretty cool because I was enabling my hydra. But the uh, some of the other ones like don't the, some of the rare ones aren't very good. Like there's two of them. Um, I don't know if there's very good. Don't don't worry about picking up those. I, I played um, it was one of the untapped deserts. It was actually the blue one that taps for colorless or you can use it to mill. I actually played that in a black red deck with no other blue sources and no blue cards because I needed a desert for the two sand stranglers that I opened. The deck also had two evolving wild. So it was kind of like I had essentially 10 sources of both colors so it's like, I just, I kind of need one more desert because I had a black mm-hmm. one and a red one. And I was like, I really want three to make sure that these are just generally turned on. Um, and, and that did it. That was exactly what I needed. So I, I, I'm okay with playing the colorless ones when you have some of the desert matter cards and they're important. And then some of them, I, I think endless sands is probably just worth playing. That's the rare one that lets you exile your own dudes and then eventually return them. Like, I think that card's just good apart from the other colorless ones like survivors encampments pretty easy to fit in if you need it or if you're splashing and then the other ones like i'm probably just going to run them if i have a desert matters cards and need it turned on Mm -hmm. yeah um the what was the card called you just you just mentioned the 
Eternal Sands? No. Um, Endless Sands. Endless Sands, that's it. Um, it feels like it would be too slow to to, to me, so I, it's, I think it's one of those cards that I won't see, see in draft because I won't pick it, um, and I won't get it passed to me, but uh, it'd be interesting to see where that card comes down. It, it does seem slow, but, I mean, there's a lot of removal, so maybe it's just maybe it's just worth trying uh, in a draft coming up, so. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? No, I think we've got us covered. I think it's pretty good. It's it's a fun format so far for me. Um, you know, I hope to be doing a lot more drafts in the next couple of weeks, so maybe I'll know more in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and you've just got your emotes done for your Twitch channel, yeah? Oh, that's true. They're waiting in the 50,000 long queue of getting approved, so maybe <laughs> in a couple of weeks. Maybe when I'm back from vacation, we'll have those ready to go, so. Um, what else? Uh, oh, I mean, uh, we'll ask last week for some feedback on the podcast. So, uh, listeners, constant listeners of the podcast will remember that. Um, and we got some feedback and it was much appreciated, uh, very constructive, uh, positive feedback. So we really appreciate that. So again, we love getting feedback. So send us messages on Twitch or, uh, or sorry, on, on Twitter or on Twitch. Um, I got a couple of private messages on Twitch and it's, it's pretty cool. And you can also leave comments on the bottom of the men from Moto page if uh, if you so desire, which is where kind of one of the first I would say first pieces of public feedback that we've gotten is there. So mm-hmm. uh, go check that out and let us know what you think. Aside from that, what do you got going on this week aside from the GP? Well, I, I mean, that's it. But that's kind of a big deal, right? Like we're leaving on Thursday. It's about an eight hour drive from here to Toronto. Um, longtime mana deprived viewers, uh, will appreciate this. We're having dinner with Mr. And Mrs. Flaming Sheep on Friday evening. Uh, Brian's a good friend, was my teammate for GP Portland and, and used to do videos a long time ago, uh, for mana deprived before he got super busy. So I'm looking forward to reconnecting with him and seeing a lot of my friends there. I also kind of had the experience when I was at GP Richmond, we're kind of between rounds. A lot of people who were either other streamers or watched the stream would kind of just gravitate together. And we ended up having kind of a cool little group between rounds to just kind of chat about the games. So I'm kind of hoping that that'll develop there too. Walking Sponge, a.k.a. Brad, said that he'll be there. And Scott Vance, who listens to the podcast, that I, I got to bump into at Richmond, but I'd love to sit down and chat with him longer. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about that, man. Like, I got to go have a day to hang out in Toronto with Kelsey, then the GP to attend. Marty's going to be there. It's, it's like all the cool kids are going to be there. So it's kind of appropriate that you're not. That I'm not there. Yeah. Nah, always with the jabs. You got to make me feel bad. Oh, you know, no, I'm, I'm going guy, Dave. I, I'm going home for a week, so I'm going to look forward to that. My home. This is my home, but I'm going to my my previous home. So uh, we're going to go visit some family on the farm. No Internet, no magic. And actually, no, that's a lie. We're going to take our Planeswalker decks and play uh, when we're there. So of course you are. It's going to be it's going to be good fun. It's going to unplug. I'm going to turn the phone off. No Internet. It's it's going to be great. So I'll come back recharged and ready to go for the next podcast. Sounds good, man. Awesome. So thank you audience once again for listening. And, uh, you can catch us on the Twitch or Twitter. Travis, you are at, at Simulan or twitch.tv slash Simulan. You can find me there. Yeah. And I'm at D civilian. That's D S A V I L L I A N at both of them as well. Once again, thank you to Mana deprived and face to face games for all the support and the host. And uh, listeners, we'll catch you next time. Adios.